I was probably 17, 18 years ago. I think they're called diffusers. Fluorescent lights, those little, the glass things that the light shines through, you know what those are? And I was going to save 20, 30 bucks. I don't even remember what it was. So I'm going to cut out some of those and put them in our kitchen. Our kitchen at the time had these things. So I put down some, some paper on, the, uh, uh, on, our, on our countertop and I, I had to cut out two of these. And I'm not too good at this stuff. But I did great. And I got these things cut out and uh, took the old ones down and you know you got to measure do all that stuff I'm not good at that stuff and I put them in there and I was like oh, wow I did it and I pulled my wife in and she looked at it and said huh unusually uh, successful job for you in something in this regard and we're sitting there and I am so happy and I'm so pleased because I maybe saved twenty dollars and then I went to pick up the papers. I'd cut through the formica on the countertop. <laughs> and it wasn't right away, but it was maybe 10 minutes later, my wife Julie came to me and said, I love you. <laughs> and I appreciate your investment in trying to make this work and save us money. I love that. But, but, you're never to fix another thing in our house. Because every time you go to save us money by fixing something, it costs us more money to repair it. I go to my doctor annually once a year. We get to the end of the physical and he says something like this. You know, overall, Todd, you're in great shape. Da -da 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 -da. This stuff is all good. And then we get to the end of it, and he says, but. And you guys can all guess what follows my doctor's but. It's been the same for 20 years here. Lots of folks after a sermon. Over the years, Todd, I love the sermon. Love this point. Love that. Love that. Love that. Love that. But. Now, smart folks have learned, let's heavy load the good stuff. Let's make it positive. And then you got this word, though, that right in the middle, it denotes a transition. But then comes the hard stuff. Folks, today... We're looking at the biggest but ever, ever. Paul's written this letter to these folks. His heart is overflowing. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us every spiritual blessing. We went too fast through that whole chapter one where Paul is unveiling and trying to make clear these spiritual blessings that are overflowing his heart. He just can't contain it. We're going to go into chapter 2 now. He's continuing to develop that theme of all the spiritual gifts God's given us. We're going to look at the clearest, most concise description of the gospel that I know of in Scripture. 
And my hope is that these two words, we're going to make t-shirts, we're going to make bumper stickers, we're going to put them on hats. My hope is the rest of your life, these two words will fill your heart with a sense of God's love. But God. But God. We're in the same place where to people who have already treasured Christ, people who have already understood their sin and their need of Jesus, who have already said, Jesus, I'm going to treasure you. Paul understands that the foundation for their experiencing more joy, more confidence, more peace in a world that is beyond messed up is continuing to grow in our understanding of how involved God was and is in our salvation. And he's worked to this summary. But God. We were spiritually dead. We're going to pull that apart. I understand almost everybody here already understands it. When Paul wrote the letter, he was writing the letter to people who already understood it. But his confidence was, and mine is as well, the more thoroughly you understand that, the more love there's going to be for God. The greater confidence there's going to be in a world that is just messed up. Not just in Israel, in the United States. Not near to the degree. I hope this gives us some sense. we got problems here, real problems. I don't want to diminish that or minimize that. But we're not dealing with what the Israelites are dealing with. But God made us alive. I expect you all understand that. If you leave here today without appreciating that more fully, I will be disappointed. Now for us to experience this, I understand the Holy Spirit's got to do that work. And we're going to look at a text that most of us are familiar with. You ready? Here we go. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In my written text, I got so many circles around these two words that it's hard to read the words, but I know what they are around them. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that for those of us who are dead and are alive now, you will help us all more fully understand it. For those who are maybe online or here today who haven't yet trusted you, I pray that you will use this text in your sovereignty. Give them a fuller picture of your grace and of your love. Oh, Father, you have been good to us. Our conviction is that we will spend eternity growing in our understanding of how rich your grace, your mercy, your love is. Use this time together to help us not just understand it, but to help us feel it. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Two ideas today. We were dead, but God made us alive. Do I need to explain that any further? You're pretty much following me? We were dead, and you were dead. I think he's using this term literally of where we were spiritually. First corpse I saw was my grandfather, my senior year of high school. Second was a buddy a few weeks before I got married, that I taught how to ride a motorcycle who was killed riding his motorcycle. I'll tell you, the one that's made the most significant impression on me, and I've shared it before, was at about 27 years old, I'd just been at, at the, my first church for just several months, Barton Sanguine. He'd had cancer. He was not in good shape. And I was there when he died. And what struck me is in that instant when he breathed his last, I've shared with you, he literally looked at his wife and went, and bam, he was gone. And what struck me was the absolutely unmistakable contrast between being alive and being dead. Bam. Bam. Instantaneously, Gone. Now, Paul's been working through this whole first chapter to help us understand we were dead. Now, let me explain. When you're dead, you can't do anything. It's part of Paul's point in this first chapter. He hasn't told us to do one thing all the way through chapter one. Not one command, don't do this. He's writing to believers, understand how much God has done. Because that's where this praise God, our Father, of, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that joy that wells up is having a fuller understanding of how much God has done. Dead people can't do anything. Now the challenge is when we're spiritually dead, we're still physically alive. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. A lot of crossover with trespasses and sins. I think trespasses are, are, are those obvious 
boundaries which God has put. You know, trespassing going on somebody else's property, those obvious boundaries which are out there that we cross. What he's trying to say here is we're full of sin. Sins are those things we do where there might not be a clear boundary, but it is opposed to what God would have us do. You following me? Here's what he's saying. We were dead in full of sin in which you once walked. Now, here's the challenge. We're spiritually dead, but we're physically alive. We can dance, we can move, we can hit a golf ball, we can talk with our friends, we can think, we can feel things. We can blow people up. And yet the reality is we're spiritually dead. One of the funnest things I did this last summer is I went to see Elton John. Let me see the Elton John fans here. Oh, the rest of you have poor choices in music. <laughs> I've listened to this guy since I was in high school. I, I don't know, there's 50-some thousand, 60,000 people, and the place is rocking. There's a couple of times in the concert where I actually say to myself, most of these folks are headed for hell. In the middle of this rocking concert, a couple of times, most of these people are spiritually dead. But it feels so alive. Woo! Playing every song I knew, every song except one, and he said, this is a far less familiar song. They sang one that I didn't recognize, and I'll just tell you, it should stay less familiar. Every other song was absolutely terrific. But what do people who are physically alive, who are spiritually dead, look like? And Paul is particularly reminding those of us who are now spiritually alive. He's going over stuff on some level we already understand. And he unpacks what does that look like? Those who are spiritually dead, where we used to be. And his big idea here is those who are spiritually dead are captives. He's going to make a list of four things to which we were captive, however much we were aware of it, before we came to Christ. The first one is the values of our culture. We're immersed in a world, we're living in a world that doesn't have godly values. In my adult life, I feel like culturally, we have drifted from however much we used to hold more Judeo-Christian ethics. So what I did is I'm just sitting here thinking, because you guys pay me to sit and think about this stuff, and I came up with a list that if I'd showed it to my wife, she probably said, you shouldn't put this up here. So I just choose when there's that risk not to share it with her. <laughs> and once you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the values of a world that don't see who I am, the values of a world where everybody, almost everybody is spiritually dead. And I just made this list as I'm sitting. More. The answer to life is more. Whatever it is, more. Uh, Johnny did a nice job talking about how we ought to be greedy in Jesus. But when we use that term greedy, we live in a world where people are greedy. More power, more money, more fame, whatever it is. I'll just be happier if I have more. No boundaries. 
Freedom is having no boundaries, not understanding that boundaries, appropriate boundaries, because the church has used some boundaries, in my estimation, over my life that weren't actually biblical boundaries, if you're following me. And if you want to talk about this anymore, text me, call me, we'll sit down and talk about it. But where we live in a world where no boundaries in terms of uh, marriage, relationships, gender, what we can do with unborn babies. And it goes lots of other directions. No moral absolutes. There really isn't this God who's an objective reality that from his character, right and wrong actually flow. So let's just do what we want to do. Whatever that is. If it makes me happy, a book I've recommended to you before, I gave it to all my kids after I read it, by Jonathan Haidt and another guy, H-I-D-T, called The Coddling of the American Mind, and he talks about three lies that are being promoted out there in culture. Uh, uh, mostly they, their focus is on college campus, but, but one of them is this, trust your feelings. And that feels like to me an increasingly prevalent value. However it makes me feel, if it makes me feel good, it must be right. Use my brain a little less and my heart a little more. And that's determining what's right and wrong. Politics are the answer. Again, if you don't have a God, if you don't have this, you're going to have politics. Now, don't hear me saying that we shouldn't be involved in politics and what's going on. If we haven't figured out that who we elect has implications for the values that are being promoted in our culture, again, come see me. We're to be salt and light in this world, promoting God's glory and his love. But there's just out there this anger on both sides, just thinking, if we can just elect the right guy, everything will be solved. If you go back and just read a little American history, it is not that simple. Comfort and entertainment are the goals in life. I've quoted him before. Neil Postman wrote a book, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago. Amusing ourselves to death. God has been so good to us. We live so comfortably. The resources we have are unlike any people that the history of the world has ever seen. But the most meaningful life, if you read Jesus, I was at the end of Luke this last week, uh, again, I didn't need to be reminded, but I was reminded, he really promises us persecution and hardship. Wars, rumors of wars, your parents, your siblings, your friends, they're all going to turn you over to the authorities. You're going to be persecuted and some of you are going to be put to death. There's a sign-up sheet for the gospel, isn't there? How many of you would like to be persecuted, face hardship, and have everybody really dislike you because of your love for me? Here's where the line starts. Don't say anything that might potentially be offensive to anyone. Have you guys heard of cancel culture? I've had folks suggest to me I shouldn't have mentioned abortion or LGBTQ from the pulpit. Because it's politics. And while politics is involved in those things, I'm pretty convinced God is concerned about life. The life with which 
with whom he is the author. And every human being created in his image. Pretty confident God cares about that. Gender. First book. God. Created them male and female. We're going to get to it in the spring. Marriage. God designed marriage between a man and a woman to be this complementary, intimate relationship, which ultimately is a display of his glory. So I appreciate people's encouragement to help me be more effective, but be assured we will talk about anything that God cares about. If you don't agree with me, we can't be friends. One of the lies, again, that uh, Jonathan Haidt points out, the third lie in his book. Again, I go back to COVID, some of the political things. I don't know how many families I talked to that there was division in the families because people didn't see eye to eye on stuff. We're going to get to it in Ephesians 4. The role we have as those who treasure Christ is to speak the truth, but to speak it in love. I don't have anybody in the world, including my wife, that agrees with me on everything. I got pretty good friends that hold what I would consider very unhealthy views. My friendship is not dependent upon their agreeing with me on everything. You remember it was Jesus who was accused for hanging with the wrong kinds of people? You guys remember that part, right? That I actually came to seek and save those folks. Hard to do if we don't spend time with them. So I want you to notice, because he's going to give us a pretty, cons a, a, a pretty comprehensive list before we came to faith in Christ of where we were imprisoned and how we were captive. First, to the values of this world. Secondly, to a real supernatural enemy. And you were dead in the trespasses of sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Here he's talking about Satan. There is a real spiritual enemy. He has emissaries emissaries that are out there trying to destroy our lives. If they can't keep us from loving Christ, and we're going to deal with this when we get to the end of Ephesians again, he's going to talk about preparing for his birth. He's going to try and make our lives as miserable as we can. One of the ways he's going to try and do that is, I think, tempt us to get back to the values of the world that aren't from Christ. There's a real enemy. I came to believe in this real enemy uh, probably six, seven years after I came to treasure Christ. Timothy Warner, in a book called Spiritual Warfare, wrote this, and I read this, oh, 35 years ago, and it stuck with me. Most evangelicals are secular humanists with a spiritist vocabulary. And that's what I was. 
I talked about spiritual things, but the reality of Satan, he just wasn't that real. Then I dealt with three people that I cared about that I knew pretty, pretty well who were dealing with direct, overt manifestations of Satan. And I went, whoa. One was a dear missionary buddy gone to seminary with who had been frightened off the mission field because he'd been confronted with, with, with Satan doing things that he, did, he wasn't prepared for because he didn't have a spiritual enough of a worldview. Now, we got movies out there. Notice in the last several decades, there's more stuff about the occult. I went to a Betty Davis movie that had occultic themes in it my freshman year of college, and not because I was a God-fearing, Christ-adoring guy, just because I had the daylight scared out of me. I said, I am never going to watch anything like this again. Television, bam, more and more of these themes. Movies, more and more of these themes. We want to know enough about the enemy that we're prepared. But we don't want to become too focused. One of my favorite books, I read this again about 35, 40 years ago, C.S. Lewis. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Here's the reality. Before we came to treasure Christ, we were in bondage. We were captive to the values of this world, and we were in bondage to Satan. Outside the world, Satan, then inside too, to the sin in us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, find the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's part of your inheritance. You, it's who you are as children of Adam and Eve, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. I love here Paul's not separating it. I think of three of the biggest drives. Sleep, eat, physical intimacy. You guys know what I'm talking about there? Sleep, too much of it, sloth. Eat, too much of it. I don't even like mentioning this one, you understand? <laughs> Gluttony. Sex, the way that's gone. You guys follow how many pornographic sites there are that are available to all of us right now? How much money is being made? I'm not even going to quote the numbers because it is just astounding. When you talk about no boundaries as a culture, where we've gone. But the mind, feeling of superiority and arrogance, a pride, being smart enough if you go to RCC not to share it out loud, but maybe some prejudice. Maybe not ethnically, but maybe towards people that are having trouble making a living. Again, Jesus said, if you think this stuff in your head, you're guilty of doing it. Paul's just following Jesus here. What he's trying to give us a sense of is all of us as human beings, we are in big trouble. The culture, Satan, what's inside of us, and that leads to a righteous, eternal condemnation. Pick it up at verse 3 there. 
among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Here's where he's trying to go. Help us appreciate how opposed, how big of enemies of God we were before we treasured Christ. For those particularly raised in the church, that like Stephen, Johnny, two of our staff guys and me, we weren't by worldly standards that bad of people. You compare me with the Hamas on a worldly level, I'm pretty stinking good. From God's perspective, there's not that big a difference between Hamas and me. That's what Paul's trying to help us understand. And the consequence of that, don't miss this. Children of wrath, God ought to pour out his wrath on us. Holy, righteous wrath. Because of our deadness to who he is. Our deadness to recognizing him as the author of life, as the giver of life, as the giver of salvation. That's the consequence that every single human individual deserves. Had enough? What Paul understands, and I'm convinced of, is it's the foundation of being able to say more wholeheartedly, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And without it, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We get the magnitude and the depth of our need. We ain't done. We were dead. In my two favorite words, I think. Oh, I forgot. You ever get, does it really, when I forget stuff I have in there, does it just really hard to come back to it? Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was a, worked for the Red Army, did some atrocious things. Uh, wrote a letter saying some not nice things about Joseph Stalin. You young people, look up Wikipedia. Uh, a bad Russian leader, and maybe some of the rest of us too, went to a gulag for eight years. And what it did is it made him consider and ponder the nature of humanity. And I love this quote. If it were only so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. That's what Paul's telling us in these first three verses of chapter two. But God made us alive. Did you feel that transition? Oh, yes. We were dead. But God. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. Now, I would like to have laser beams and a rock band when you get to those two words. I mean, right now, I just like to have lightning bolts from heaven shining and blaring. But God, this is what he's been developing all through chapter 1. Just sit there for a second. But I promise you, you start to get this more thoroughly, it'll change your life forever. It's not that we don't understand it, but we get it more fully. Ha! Ah, but God. And he gives us God's motive here. Mercy, love, grace, kindness. Now, I've been doing men's Bible studies pretty much since I came to faith. And it's probably 25, 28 years ago as I lead men's study. I get to some place where I ask this question. What do you think are God's primary emotions? Every men's group I've led and asked that question predominantly comes up with two. Anger. And my wife tells me don't hold the duvet. Anger and disappointment. No, I've led one's women's group. I did that spring. First time in all my life I had a group with just women. They answered that question much more balanced. Men, for you women in here, just understand. I don't know what it is about the way we're raised in culture. I don't know what it is. The feeling like we're just disappointing God and he's pretty much just ticked with us. And I'm talking to guys that I think already treasure Christ. I want you to look at these. Is God a God of wrath? We just looked at that. Part of who he is. But his wrath and these emotions. And is he happier than he is mad? Yes! I think, what could the church in America look like if we had a view of God that was more accurate? But God being rich in mercy, mercy for pitiable people, people who do deserve nothing, but people that they deserve righteous wrath. And yet what does he do? He just shows some mercy. And not just a little. Look how Paul qualifies it. He's rich in mercy. Ah, if we could hold this view of God and live with our neighbor who's holding abhorrent views and interact with them as somebody who we are filled with God's mercy because he has shown it to us. Would it change maybe our conversations? Rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. 
great. I try to come up with an illustration of this. I don't know how to illustrate it. His overwhelming affection for us, though we are deserving of his wrath because it's inherent in who we are. I will tell you, it's harder for me to love people. Right now, I have emotions towards the Hamas, some of which are justified, some of which are not. But we were like the Hamas to God, and he loved us. Even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace, this unmerited favor, it's what he's been unpacking. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches, riches of his grace which have been lavished on us. He already told us that. In kindness. Mercy, love, grace, kindness. You want to know the picture I want the world to have of our God? Mercy, love, grace, kindness. You know the picture I want you all to have of our God? Mercy, love, grace, kindness. I tell you, do I sin? Oh, Lord, I still sin so many times. Why do I never beat myself up? Ever. I go, I'm missing joy I could have experienced. Lord, I'm sorry about that, and I'm sorry I chose to miss some of the joy. You have mercy on me. You love me. You shower me with your rich grace and kindness. You just work for me. Jesus said again, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve you guys. We got a God that serves us because he loves us. God's work. He saved us. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead. I just underlined that again. That's not the point here. But we were dead. We were enemies. He should have damned us. We were dead. And our trespasses made us alive. You want to look at the subject and the primary verb? God made us alive. Then he's pulling that apart. That's the big idea of Ephesians 2, 1 to 7. We were dead, but God made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved from our sins, for our being trapped by Satan. I'm no longer in bondage to Satan. Even as I wrestle with food, I have the power to fight. Now, I'd like to win a little more than I do, but I have the power to fight. Before I was a Christian, I didn't have the power to fight. That's the difference. When my head and thoughts go places I don't like, I didn't have the power to stop it before. Now I got the power. You've been saved from our sins. And he raised us up with him. Verse 6, and raised us up with him. Now notice how it's all connected. Back in verse 5, made us alive together with Christ. 
If you go back to 1, 19 and 20, I'm not going to go back there now. What did it say God the Father did with the Son? Raised him. We've been raised up with him. It's already happened if we treasure Christ. Our spiritual death that held us in complete bondage and we could do nothing to change has been altered. He was dead and then he got raised. We were dead. We have already been raised. Now we are alive. Never to be spiritually dead again. Ever. Raised us up with him and seated us up with him. This for me is just mind-blowing. And raised us up with him. Christ was raised up. And then Christ was seated with God the Father at his right hand. Notice we don't get to sit at his right hand. That's exclusively Jesus. But what we do have right now is we've been seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are so connected to Jesus. The union with us and Jesus can't be separated. So he got raised, we got raised. He got set in heaven, we right now. Have that power, have that authority that comes with right now spiritually. That's going to be consummated when Jesus comes back. But he's talking primarily, not exclusively, about the present reality we have in Christ. you got your rear ends parked right here. Do you understand you're also right now in heaven with Christ, with the Father? Oh, that's good. And he uses us to display God's immeasurable grace. Now, God does all of this so that in the coming ages, now and going forward, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why does he do this? Ultimately, that God gets the glory. We get this experience of his love. It fills us. We already were connected to him. Paul's hope, my hope, let's get more of it. How long do I want us to get more of this? Until we see Jesus face to face, either at the end of this life or his return. I'll take either one. I loved Elton John. That was a fun concert. Now, if you brought a bunch of people to that Elton John concert and then you brought them here, where would they say there was more life? I think you know the answer. I love going to that concert. But those folks who would say more life at the Elton John concert would be unmistakably wrong. My favorite time of the week is Sunday mornings. You know why? Because we gather together, those of us who used to be dead. Oh, what a terrible state. And now we're alive. And we get to celebrate 
being alive. More life here or Elton John? Here. Where would I pick to go? Elton John or here? Here. Because we were dead. But God. But God made us alive. We're going to celebrate this morning the means of God raising us and seating us with Christ. His death. Who else but God makes things alive through death? Who else has that power? Who else has that ability. So we're going to celebrate this morning. And we are celebrating as those who are thankful for his death. We're not overlooking. We're not diminishing the power of his death because it's everything. But folks, we're celebrating today as people who are alive. So you alive people, get up here and take the symbols of his death. Because these are symbols of what makes us alive. Get out of your seats. Get up and get out here.